You're listening to the St. John's Diamond Creek podcast, recorded live each Sunday at St. John's Anglican Church, Diamond Creek. This episode presented by Youth and Young Adults Minister, Kirk McKenzie. Time for our Bible reading. So we're going to do the Bible reading and then I'll, I'll let you know what's happening with the kids' activities this evening. But this is a pretty straightforward Bible reading. So kids, if you can read, this would be one I'd recommend reading along with. Get out your blue Bibles, page 799, um, or there's a recommended Bible app there uh, if you want to get the Bible on your phone for free. So Matthew 18 verses 15 to 17. All of these words are spoken by Jesus. Uh, They're part of a section of teaching that he's doing, um, basically about dealing with uh, bad behaviour, sinful behaviour amongst believers. So let's have a look at Matthew 18 verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Let's talk about this short but very important passage. It's a challenging passage. It can be very hard to apply in your own life. And it can also be very rewarding. But I think you could make a case for this passage being one of the most uh, ignored or disobeyed commands of Jesus in the entire Bible. So we're going to have a bit of a think about why that might be the case uh, tonight. Um, Let's bring up that um, wheel that we had earlier before we did communion, just reminding us of where we've gone in in the series so far. We're talking about reconciliation, which is basically about bringing peace to a conflict situation. Part one is to glorify God. Everything that we do in conflict needs to flow out of our relationship with God, who loves us, who forgives us when we sin. We're going to talk about sin a fair bit. Sin is the things that we say, do, and think that are wrong, that are evil. Um, So God forgives our sins, and he is the one who has um, made peace possible. That's part one. Part two is getting the log out of your own eye. We had a big focus on that in communion. And then tonight is part three, gently restoring the other person that you're in conflict with. And uh, so we've done the preparation to have the conversation. Today is about actually having that challenging conversation. And there's three steps to part three. And we're going to, there's one in each verse, and we're going to work through that. So keep that passage open in front of you, and let's have a look at verse 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. Now, the reference to a brother or sister here is not uh, the siblings that you might have grown up with. Uh, this is a reference to fellow believers. It's a common thing that happened um, uh, well, people still refer to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. I'm a Christian. If you're a Christian too, then I am your brother in Christ. So that's the reference here. And so this situation that Jesus is talking about is a fellow believer 
is sinning. And so we see their sin, we make sure that we deal with our own sin, that we're not a hypocrite, and then we go and talk to them. And in this step, if they agree that they've sinned and that that's bad and that they're going to live differently, then we're done. Conflict is finished, resolved. Um, Peace has been made. There's no more action required. Well done, everyone. And to be honest, that's often all that needs to happen in a good conflict situation. Um, And what I really like about it is that it respects the dignity of the person who is being confronted. And we avoid this thing called triangulation. Now, I'm going to enlist a few volunteers in this section here just to show you how triangulation works. Um, so, uh, oh, Em's got a hand up. Em, you put, can you come and just stand over here for us? So, by the way, I'm not picking people because of real-life personalities, okay? This is just uh, as a demonstration. Um, your brother can get involved. Yeah, sure. Uh, not, not just yet. Not just yet. Not just yet. Um, okay, so uh, just say I've got a problem with M. You know, this is M, everybody. Uh, so I've got a problem with M, uh, but I don't really feel like talking to her about it for some reason. Maybe I think I'm a bit shy. I don't really do that sort of thing. I don't like awkward conversations. That would be an awkward conversation. Uh, you, you know, maybe, maybe I'm a bit judgmental of M. Like, she won't listen. She never listens. Uh, or maybe I'm like, like I spiritualize it and I go, oh, uh, you know, aren't we meant to be nice to people? Like, we're Christians. Like, I don't want to judge. And so I avoid talking to Emma about it, and instead, uh, next volunteer, anyone want to volunteer? It's a very easy job. Yes, up the back, Teresa stands up. So uh, instead, I go and have a chat to Teresa about it. Now, if Teresa's got more guts than me, she might go and tell Em the issue. Can you see what shape we've drawn here? It's a triangle. I haven't gone a straight line to Em. We've drawn a triangle, triangulation. Now, here's the problem with triangulation. Maybe Em hears from Teresa, and doesn't really understand. Like, I don't get it. I don't really see what the issue is. So Teresa has to come back to me and get more clarification. And then, because I'm still a coward, I need to send it back to her. And so and it sort of can bounce forward. And Teresa's really busy. And there's all these conversations happening. So this is taking weeks. You know, it's like unfolding. And then, oh, we can't, you can't catch up. You've got to do it by text message or by, you know, leaving voicemail or whatever. And so it can become quite difficult. And it's just not as good as a clear conversation, straight line between two people. But... What about this? And again, this is not judgments on actual people. But if Teresa didn't have the guts to talk to Emma about it either, so she goes and talks to, uh, can the three people standing next to Teresa stand up? Uh, sitting next to Teresa stand up. So she goes and talks to these three. I've coincidentally chosen all women so far. That was not deliberate. Um, <laughs> um, she talks to these three just to get their advice on how to deal with the situation. And then Cassie is going to put her hand up. Problem with Cassie is she just loves a juicy bit of gossip. And so she goes and tells everyone in this section of the church all about the problem. And uh, you can see how triangulation quickly becomes, I don't know, pentagon, hexagon, whatever, and also can very quickly turn into gossip. And also the problem with all that is Em still hasn't heard about it. (laughs) She might be completely oblivious to the fact that there's a problem between me and her. So that is the challenge of... Is anyone familiar with this in life? Anyone familiar with this, maybe in a workplace or in school or something? Yeah, I'd be stunned if you haven't seen this sort of thing play out. Uh, Everyone, you can take a seat, please. Um, And so uh, what Jesus' simple first step does is prevents that from happening, is prevents this turning into a gossip situation. 
Um, and you know, I, I was thinking if I could think of any stories of triangulation in my own life, and I mean, it took me 10 seconds to think of 10. You know, like it's just so easy to think of those situations and, and how they can get out of control. And I thought about it, I thought, you know what? If Jesus' first step had been followed in most of those situations, all the backstabbing and distrust and betrayal and hurt and bitterness that came out of those situations could easily have been avoided. So it's excellent practical advice here from Jesus. Now, here's an important note on this. I was thinking, okay, would there ever be a time where approaching the person one-on-one would not be the best course of action? And I could think of one uh, situation where I don't think it would be the best, and that's an abuse situation. Okay, so if you've been abused by someone, it's not just a difference between you, but they've actually abused you, then it might be too difficult or too complicated or too dangerous for you to be the person who confronts that, you know, the, other, the other person. And so in that situation, I would definitely recommend bringing another person in who you trust, who can speak on your behalf and, and make that, um, that confrontation for you. And if the abuse was of an illegal nature, I would say make sure that that person is an official person. Uh, by that I mean they don't have to be police necessarily, or that it could be a situation. But, uh, well, in a church context, it would be one of the staff, um, or if it was at a school, it would be a teacher or a you know, member of the staff or something like that. So hopefully that makes sense. In a workplace, maybe you would find a, um, the welfare coordinator or something like that. Um, you would still try and keep things private, though. Okay? You'd still do your very best to avoid gossip, but just because of the extremeness of that situation, it's probably not going to be the very best thing to follow this um, you know, to the letter. I, I can think of a couple other situations where maybe um, you wouldn't do it one-on-one and you might try and include another person, but whatever the situation, we try not to let this just spill out into rumour and things going around and around. So that's step one. Step two uh, is in verse 16. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now, whenever I've read that, I always think of TV court dramas straight away. And I know from TV that having more witnesses in a, in a court case is better than having one. Because if there's one, it's sort of your word against theirs, right? Uh, but if there's more people coming along uh, and saying the same thing, then that's more compelling. So, for example, you know, if we take M and I again, you know, maybe M just thinks I'm a bit touchy about that particular issue and I always blow it out of proportion so she doesn't really have to think about it that much. But then if two extra people come with the same concern, she might go, oh, okay, no, maybe it's not just Kirk's issue. Maybe it's actually a bit more serious. So it's just a logical next step that Jesus puts in here that says, yeah, that often a number of people is more convincing than just one and might have a greater impact. Now, what's the purpose of this? Why are we confronting them? Well, it says in the second part of verse 15, if they listen to you, you have won them over. And so that's the real focus here, winning that person over. The focus is not winning, like just winning. It's winning them over. That's really important to remember because often in conflict, we treat it like this. I'm right, you're wrong, I will prove that I'm right, and then I win. 
Okay? And that's a terrible way to think about conflict. Partly because you just never, you'll never be right all the time. You will get things wrong. No person is perfect. Um, but also, you know, in a Christian context, if we see, see sin in a fellow believer's life, pointing it out should not be about winning and being better than them. It should be a loving thing to do. And it should be about helping that person get the sin out of their life. That's like winning them over, as in winning them over to a better way of living. So this is very valuable to think about because one of the basics of being a Christian is to believe that sin is bad. The Bible bangs on about how bad sin is. Sin is the world's biggest problem. And so as a Christian, you go, well, yeah, sin is bad. And I know that God doesn't call me to live in a life of sin. He calls me to love him and he calls me to love other people. Uh, I live a a life of holiness when I'm doing that. And so sin prevents us from doing that. In fact, sin is sometimes the exact opposite of loving God and loving people. The Bible says if we have sin in our own life, we should flee from it. We should run as fast as we can in the other direction to get away from it. So if you think about it like this, if you think that sin is bad like that, then it makes sense that you would not want it in your own life, nor would you want it in the life of anyone else. Let me give you a sporting analogy for this. I play social basketball on a Monday night. Um, Our team is getting gradually older. We've been playing together for nearly 20 years. And uh, so there's more injuries these days and uh, and people who are tired and so on. So we often have to get fill-ins just to make sure we've got enough numbers to play. And the challenge for a fill-in, if they haven't played basketball for a long time, or maybe they've just played you know, down at the park or whatever, is the, chal- the challenge is the travel rule. So here's how the travel rule works. When you've got the ball, you're only allowed to take two steps without bouncing the ball on the ground. And if you take three steps, then you have committed a basketball sin, and if the referee catches you, then you'll be penalised. And so often fill-ins struggle with the travel rule and they get called for travelling quite a lot. So what does that person need? When they're filling in for my team, what do they need from their teammates? Do they need the experienced places coming up to them and going, stop it, what are you doing? Stop travelling, we told you not to do it. Is that going to help them? Probably not. What they actually need is some help in changing their behaviour. They need to have pointed out what the rule is so they understand the rule because maybe they don't really know the rule and then they need some help in changing their technique maybe in the way they're running or the way they're catching the ball or something so that they don't end up traveling and we should think about approaching someone about their sin in a similar way it's not making them it's not about making them feel bad it's not making them feel like they've let you down it's about helping them to see the problem and then helping them to correct the problem and move into a better way of living back into a life of holiness so that's what step one and step two are about. Step three is also about this, but it's only needed if step one and two don't work. Let's have a look at it in verse 17. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So basically Jesus is saying, eventually an unrepentant sinner needs to be brought to the attention of the wider church. Unrepentant means you are not sorry. If you repent, you say, I've done the wrong thing, I'm sorry. Unrepentant means I'm not sorry. I don't think it's a problem or I don't care. Uh, So if they're in in that situation where where they are unrepentant, that gets brought to the the wider church. Again, not to shame them, 
not as like a public punishment, but to awaken them to the seriousness of their sin. You know, if the whole church says, dude, this is a problem, you need to change, then hopefully that will get their attention and, and open their eyes to how serious it is. But if they still refuse, Jesus says, then treat them like a pagan and a tax collector. These two phrases pop up fairly often in the Bible. We don't um, use them in the same way these days. Well, a pagan's similar, I guess. Pagan is someone who does not believe that um, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We might say that they're a non-Christian. And I don't use that as a, as a negative term at all. Probably some of you here tonight are non-Christians in the sense that you would say, if I asked you, are you a Christian, you'd probably say no. But you're investigating, you're checking it out, um, you've got questions about Christianity, and I think that's great. And I don't think that the Christians in the room are better than the non-Christians in the room. It's just at different you know, points in the journey. And so um, that said, though, I would also say that because I am a Christian, if you were to call me a non-Christian, I would go, whoa, 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 what are you talking about? What do you mean I'm not a Christian? Yes, I am. And that would really get my attention. If you felt my actions were speaking so loudly in a negative way that it seemed like I didn't even believe what I said I believed, uh, then that could be a way to really get my attention. The other thing that Jesus, the other other term is tax collector, which is basically Bible slang for somebody who's hard to trust. Um, Now, my dad is a tax collector. I think I've told you this before. Uh, He works in the tax office. You'll be pleased to know that there is very high levels of accountability for staff in the tax office. Higher levels of accountability than any other workplace I know of. That is a good thing. But back in Jesus' day, the tax collectors had very, very low levels of accountability. And they took advantage of that um, and they, they cheated people out of a whole lot of money. And so it's not that you could never trust a tax collector, but that you would be very slow to trust a tax collector. And so what Jesus is saying by saying treat people like they're a tax collector, he's actually saying we need to lower our trust levels for that person. They're claiming that they follow Jesus, but they're refusing to repent of sin. Repenting of sin is a really important part of being a Christian. So they're going to be harder to trust because of that. Um, Now, that's some fairly drastic things to treat people in that way. What would that actually look like in our church? if we did that um, and and we followed through to step three on on a situation? Well, here's some thoughts. I think the most obvious one would be if they were in a leadership position, then they would be removed from that leadership position while they still thought their sin was not an issue. And actually, in our code of conducts, um, leaders actually agree to that. We actually sign and say, yes, if I'm heading off in a different direction, um, then the church can remove me from leadership. Um, There's also a case to um, refuse people participation in communion and in baptism, which is really a logical thing, you know. We've already done communion tonight. Communion is about acknowledging that you are a sinner and that you need forgiveness. But if you're saying, I don't need forgiveness, sin's not an issue, then communion and baptism are not for you because that's what what they symbolise, is that you do have an issue. Um, Now, of course, as soon as they're repentant, as soon as they've changed, then back in straight away. So it's not a permanent ban, uh, but it might be for a time. The last thing I'd say is we would probably evangelise the person. So evangelism is when you share your faith with somebody who doesn't believe the same thing as you. 
And when I do that, I try and get back to basics. You know, really like just the fundamentals of what it is to be a Christian. I try not to get sort of sidetracked on all these sort of less important theological questions or issues or whatever. And so with a person like this, I'd be thinking, okay, well, we need, maybe they don't understand the basics and we need to talk to them about the real basics of what it means to be a Christian. Now, in all that, you know, it could sound, um, I don't know, does it sound harsh? Maybe, depending on how you think about it. Um, but the hope that Jesus has, and therefore the hope that we should have, is that that person would be gently restored into a relationship with Jesus. This is not about making them feel bad. It's about wanting the best for them and hoping that they can rejoin and be a core and important part of the church. Okay, so hopefully those steps are fairly straightforward. Step one, approach them one-on-one, keep it private. Step two, approach in a small group situation, keep it private. And step three, bring it to the big group and make it public. Here's the big question on this topic. Why don't we do it? Why have I had Christian friends tell me that at times in their life they have actively tried to, they have actively avoided applying this passage? Like, not that they didn't know about it, they knew about it, they were like, I'm not doing that. Why have I had people read the passage and tell me, before they've even tried applying it in their life once, tell me that won't work? Straight up, that won't work. What's the situation? It does confuse me a little bit. Like, why do we have this not listening situation? It confuses me because we do have some pretty extreme examples of how not applying this teaching of Jesus goes horribly wrong. So let's think about the royal commission into child abuse in churches, which is currently going on at the moment. So some churches, not all, but some, are rightly being criticised for being places where horrible abuse has happened and where it has been allowed to continue to happen unchallenged, even though people have known about it. I think about this, I go, how on earth did this happen? How did we get here? And in part, it's because instead of challenging the sins of other people in the church, we've covered them up. Instead of being honest about the fact that we stuff up and that we are not perfect and we're not a perfect organisation... And sort of allowing people to see that, we've tried to stay squeaky clean, keep it as if we're all perfect and cover it all up. John MacArthur, who's a Bible um, scholar, Bible commentator, puts it like this. The horrendous scandals that have tarnished the church recently reflect the abysmal failure of believers to confront sinning leaders and followers. The world often has had to expose what the church tried to cover up and we look pretty crap when the world has to take the initiative on sin in the church you might go well that's a pretty extreme example Uh, what about more everyday things here's just a few just in my time in being a Christian I think we're pretty slow to challenge drunkenness in other Christians and I would say this is a particular problem with youth and young adults but Older adults are far from immune from this issue. Uh, And that is, it's okay to drink alcohol. It's not a sin to drink alcohol. But to get to the point where you've completely lost control, that's considered drunkenness. And the Bible says that's a sin. That's a wrong thing to do. And so I know that a lot of those conversations do not happen. Um, Or what about sexist or racist jokes? I've heard quite a few of those at our church. Sometimes they've been challenged, but other times they haven't been. 
And then, of course, gossip, I think, would be one of the key ones, and we've talked a fair bit about gossip already. You might think of other ones. And um, in some of those things, you might go, oh, you know, just a little thing. It doesn't, it's just, that was just small. It doesn't really do major damage. But if those things take part of the culture, and if they become sort of accepted and everyone just starts doing them, then they can do major, major damage. So these passages that we're looking in the Peacemaker series... They are deeply important. They are not just sort of uh, take it or leave it bits of fortune cookie wisdom. You know, they lie at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian and to take following Jesus seriously. The good thing about this stuff is that there's a lot of reward in actually doing it. So as much as we could think of lots of examples where we don't do it, I have lots of positive examples in my life um, of people doing this for me. So my memory is that um, I was unfamiliar with this passage when I first started taking Jesus seriously. So I did it in my late teens, and I think I read this passage a couple of years later. And it occurred to me that a bunch of my friends had actually practiced these three steps with me. You know, there were some problems with my behavior many problems, some might say, but they had gently and respectfully talked to me about it, challenged me on it, and because they just seemed to do it, they were really on my side when they did it. Like I just really felt that they wanted the best for me. And so even though, you know, initially you might have a bit of a, you know, a conf- confronting sort of fighting, you know, like this person's confronting me, this means it's a conflict, I'm going to have to win, don't you? Because that's what you meant to win, conflicts. But once you get over that, you actually go, no, they've made a really good point, and this conflict is actually good for me. And that as I grew in maturity, I was then able to, because they talked to me about it, I was able to remove those sins from my life quite quickly, and everyone won then. I had a better life. The people um, who were my friends and family had a better life because of it. And I do think, what would have happened if nobody had a spoke up? What would happen if nobody had challenged me on any of those things? I would potentially still have those sins as an issue in my life right now. It would still be damaging my relationship with God and my relationship with other people. Now, I'm about to finish, but you might be wondering if these steps work when somebody involved is not a Christian. You know, could we apply this in those situations? Uh, It's not exactly the same but I think there's merit in thinking about it. I'm not going to make teaching points on this, but what I'm going to do is read a short story from a book called Resolving Everyday Conflict by Ken Sand and Kevin Johnson. And basically, I'm going to just tell you the story, and then it can be food for thought. You can have a discussion about it later, and, um, or maybe in your life groups during the week. Vicky was fired from her job for poor performance and for a habit of making sniping comments about her employer, Julia. When she came to me for advice, me as the author, about her termination, Vicky was threatening to file a lawsuit for wrongful discharge. We spent a long time talking and praying about how she could please and honour God in the situation. As God worked in her heart, Vicky decided to go back to Julia and take responsibility for her contribution to the problem. When the two women met the next day, Julia was expecting Vicky to ask her for a financial settlement to avoid a lawsuit. Instead, 
Vicky confessed her wrongs in detail, admitted that she deserved to be fired, and asked for forgiveness. Julia was so surprised that all she could do was mumble, Oh, sure. Vicky went on, I appreciate you for your forgiveness. She paused, then continued. I'd be happy to stop now, but if you would allow me to, I'd like to share a few things I've noticed where you may be contributing to the tensions with your staff. It might help avoid problems with employees in the future. Vicky's offer was so sincere that Julia felt compelled to hear her out. Even though Vicky spoke respectfully, she noticed Julia's eyes begin to fill with tears. Vicky paused. I'm sorry, she said. I guess I should stop. No, you don't understand, Julia replied. You haven't hurt me. It's just that as you were talking, I realised that you're the first person I can remember who even cared enough to talk to me like this. With that encouragement, Vicky finished what she had planned to say, still speaking with respect. Although Julia didn't agree with all her observations, she was so grateful for Vicky's concern that she was able to receive her advice without offence. By God's grace, the two women parted in peace. Now, I think that story is a really good example of the steps that we've been going through in the conflict series. And if we can bring up the... There we go. Thank you. So... It's a great example of doing step one and step two and then the first step in part three, gently restore you. I sort of said part one, part two and then step one of gently restore. So I encourage you to have a chat about that and think about pretty much everyone will be in situations, uh, you know, school, work, family, etc., where you'll be interacting with people who are, you'll have a conflict with people who aren't Christians. So it's really important to think about how this might apply there. But right here in Matthew 18, Jesus gives us a brilliant, practical, loving way to confront sin in our midst. It's about gently restoring the person away from the sin that's causing the problem and back into relationship with Jesus. It is not an easy teaching to apply to our lives. It is a challenge, but it's also deeply rewarding when we do it well and when we do it consistently. And I just want to encourage us all to have a go. Thanks for joining us. If you've got any questions about this podcast, connect with us on our website, stjohnsdc.org.au or at facebook.com slash stjohnsdc. Don't forget, you can join us live in Diamond Creek every Sunday at 9.30am and 6pm.